The following podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation. Use of this podcast does not form any attorney-client relationship. This podcast makes no warranties and disclaims liability from damages resulting from its use. Please contact a licensed attorney in your state to discuss the specific circumstances of your legal matter. Okay. Hi, and welcome back to Court Jesters, um, Hi. a legal comedy podcast. Um, yeah, it's been a while. I don't remember the last time we recorded, but it was before before the 4th of July, I know, because that was the yeah. last time I didn't do notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Melissa. I'm Kate. And yeah, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, been a while but there's been I think a lot of changes going on with both of us so I know you started a new job right I did I'm in private practice now which is so much better than being a public defender like stress wise so yeah (laughs) so yep and you got a new job too right well same organization but yeah I have a new position in the same organization so I'm not on the hotline anymore I'm in our Detroit eviction prevention team. So I only do mm-hmm. housing and only in the city of Detroit. So it's a little more um, narrow, I guess, and yeah. what I have to constantly be on top of. And mm-hmm. then I'm also doing like case review stuff. So I don't actually like I've gone to court a few times. I've given advice to people, but like I don't appear on the record or have to deal with judges directly or have to deal with opposing counsel directly. So I'm like, all right, this is probably (laughs) the best position I could be. Oh, good. (laughs) So yeah, I kind of help everyone out. And um, yeah, it's really it's a really great position. I like my new team. So and I'm glad to stay in the same organization. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I like my my new office a lot. Um, I love love the people. Um, And it's been, I haven't done, like I was used to going to court every single day, every morning without fail. And now I've been to court maybe three times since I've had this job. So it's like a big change. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I've done a lot of appellate work, which has been nice because I like the writing part a lot better. So. Oh, yeah. That is nice. Yeah. It's a little less right. frantic than trial. Yeah. Trial. Oh, level. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did get to see a trial, though. It was exciting. I, so I second chaired, but I didn't really do much of anything except like keep my client occupied so he didn't smile at the jury the whole time. Oh, my God. <laughs> he so. probably thought that that was the right thing to do, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he did. He was a good guy. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, I was really excited to do this episode. Um, We themed it Thanksgiving. And so when we were kind of in the planning works a year ago, I had um, started with like playing around with like, well, what are we going to talk about? And so I had already done a little bit of research on this a year ago. And so like when I'm doing my notes yesterday, um, I'm like, talk about all this stuff i feel like i did but i i don't i don't think i've actually recorded anything i think i just went Mm -hmm. over in my mind over and over and over again so (laughs) um i've got a lot so i'm not sure what you were able to find but i don't know thanksgiving is a crazy holiday for the law 
Yeah. I think it's a lot of family drama. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I do have to say, um, I think our last episode, we talked about White Oleander. Yes. Oh, I think I know what you're going to say. Okay. Yeah. I imaginarily <laughs> cast uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in yeah. the movie. She's not in that movie. I could have sworn I she think... was, too. And then I went and watched it after, and I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the hair. It's got to yeah, be. Yeah, it has right? to be. <laughs> I like had a cast her as like the older sister, but maybe it was like the Robin Wright character, like one mm-hmm. of the foster moms. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just, the, I don't know if it's a, um, what's it called? That effect. The Mon- Man- Mandela, Mandela effect? Yeah. Yeah. Or if it's just me being dumb, it could be easily <laughs> probably be the latter one. But anyways, so. If you have any other corrections for us, please email or <laughs> get on our Instagram or threads and let us know all the mistakes we've made because I'm sure I've made a lot more. Um, but yeah, so I actually wanted to start with, um, so I have one article that was um, from one legal website for, I think it's not, so it's four, but I think it's five. Yeah, it's five quirky uh, Thanksgiving related lawsuits because I couldn't just pick one. They were all pretty funny. And then I have one kind of bigger case I want to talk about because it was just crazy. So <laughs> I have a lot. I've got six cases now, I guess. Oh, wow. But the first five will be quick. <laughs> okay. So um, going off this website list, the first one was uh, Jacobs versus Kent in 2003. Jacobs and Kent went turkey hunting together in a wooded area in New York. After hearing gobbling noises and seeing a flash of red, Kent fired into the underbrush, but instead of bagging a turkey, he accidentally shot Jacobs, who sued Kent for negligence, making the legal argument that turkey hunters must be able to see the entire bird as well as determine its gender before firing off a shot. So... Um, How easy although, is it to determine a turkey's gender? <laughs> well, is it like very wait. obvious? Like, is it like like I how deer obvious. have horns? I, I, wow, I'm from Michigan, and I don't know what they're called right now. They're not horns. Um, um, antlers. antlers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's because they're a bird species, right? And usually, the bird species. The males are like the really colorful ones. Okay. The so yeah, maybe it's something where muted. like the the feathers are different colors for the males or something. Okay. Yeah. That makes a little more sense. I was like, that seems a little extreme. I mean, I haven't really looked into it that much, even though there's tons of wild turkeys around here, but um, I would think it would be obvious if you got a good look at the bird. Yeah. For so um, the defendant, the person who was doing the shooting uh, said that, you can't sue me or, or I'm not liable because you assumed the risk by going hunting with me that there's a chance that you'd get shot. The court ruled that although hunters assume the risk of hunting for sport, they reasonably should not have to assume the risk of negligent behavior on the part of other hunters. So it's like there's certain rules, right? When you go hunting or you're in a hunting landscape, like wear orange and stuff like that. So that's where I think like assumption of the risk comes from. But like, and I'd have to dig down more into the facts. This was just like a quick, you know, five case article mm-hmm. of like, what were all the details involved? But it's like, sure, you assume some risk, but like if you're completely, your cohort is completely ne- negligent in shooting you, like yeah. you can still sue them. 
Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there who was it? Like um didn't Cheney? Yeah. Like shoot someone <laughs> and then like the person he shot like apologized to him or something. <laughs> That's the story. I think that was in um was it Dick? Was that um Oh, that movie, not, yes. Oh, maybe. Who was it? I'm gonna say something wrong. <laughs> not Hayden Christian thing. Christian Bale. Okay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> my mind works with that connection. <laughs> Christian Bale. I think you should have gotten an Oscar for that. That was a yeah. good movie. Okay. All right. So number two, we have Silva versus Woolsworth. Um, I'm not sure if this actually the incident happened on Thanksgiving, but it involves a tricky dinner. It's a case out of California. Helen Silva was enjoying a meal of turkey, dressing, and vegetables at Woolsworth Restaurant in 1938 when she choked on a small turkey bone, which was removed with the help of a bystander. She then sued Woolsworth for injuries, embarrassment, and medical fees. Her medical fees were $36, which would equal about $450 today. Oh, okay. And she did... At the trial court level, win a judgment of $500 for general damages, which was around $6,000 today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, so, I mean, this is small claims court territory here today. Yeah. So I'm, but this was a major case. So the reward was later reversed at the appellate court because they said that a turkey bone is natural to a plate of roast turkey. Uh, and so a consumer of turkey dish should anticipate the president's the presence of bones and take care to avoid swallowing such bones. So kind of goes to the assumption of risk negligence realm again. Mm -hmm. So like if you were eating a turkey dish and choked on, I don't know, a cockroach, that's not natural to your dish. (laughs) But um, I just thought those, I always love looking back at old cases and be like, okay, what's the money there? Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Which will come back into play in an, another case in a couple of rounds, but, or it'll be the next one. No, not the next one. Okay. So, number three is Greenberg smoked turkeys versus good cook. 2010 Texas case involved recipes and copyright violation. The Greenberg smoked turkeys sold turkeys with simple cooking instructions included on the packaging and also posted those directions online. Later, uh, the company found out that these same or similar directions were on the good cook, uh, which they claim is a competitor of Greenberg's. It was on their website, which prompted the lawsuit. The claim was subsequently dismissed. And so I'm not sure exactly what the directions were, right? Because when I think of directions on packaging, it I would think it's it would be like cook the turkey at 450 mm. degrees for however amount of time right. per pound, right? So I'm like, that's not really something you can copyright. That's just like general knowledge. Mm-hmm. But um, so I went on, I can't just leave something alone. I went on Greenberg's website. So it's still a company and um, they don't have like a general how to cook a turkey, at least from my just like cursory glance through the website. Mm-hmm. They did have was a YouTube video that uh, was this guy who was Mr. Samuel Greenberg, the founder of the company, like basically going through instructions like, oh, here's what you do once you get the turkey in the mail. And like. So they're smoked turkeys, right? They're already like cooked and frozen. 
when you mm-hmm. get them. So it's not like they're shipping you a raw turkey that you then have to cook. Right. So I was really confused. I'm like, what is the copywriting that's going on here? Um, but the the video made me really hungry, and I'm really excited for turkey tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I um, am too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the video was called What to Expect When Expecting a Greenberg! Explanation point. <laughs> it's kind of a weird name for a title it's like kind of is like a riff off of what to expect when you're expecting like right child rearing book <laughs> it's a turkey okay <laughs> and then i went on to the good cook website and it's like just a general website of like here's all these recipes like you would find mm-hmm. like any website so oh and then greenberg smoked turkey website also did have a similar thing where they had like a whole tab of here's all these recipes and they were for like specific dishes like Mm -hmm. soup salads like something very specific as like a meal not Mm -hmm. just general how to cook a turkey sort of thing so i don't know obviously this was a 2010 case technology changes all the time so i don't know exactly what the specific allegations were but um yeah lawsuit over turkey directions (laughs) online (laughs) Okay, so number four, I thought about almost doing like a full deep dive into, but it's too gross. So I guess this is kind of like a trigger warning. As much as like the Greenberg turkey made me like, ooh, I'm so hungry. This like gave me the opposite effect. So this Uh is called Golden Ponds Thanksgiving Legacy. So this is actually multiple lawsuits that were later condensed into one. It's not actually a class action since all the damages varied from each person to person, but Golden Pond's restaurant and party house was the scene of perhaps the largest outbreak of foodborne illness in what's called Greece, a city outside of Rochester, New York. On Thanksgiving Day in 2016, more than 1,100 people ate their holiday buffet dinner at the restaurant, but within 24 hours, many experienced stomach pain, cramping, and diarrhea thanks to bacteria-tainted gravy that had been stored and served at too low low a temperature. Um, And so what had happened was (laughs) 1,100 people went through this restaurant throughout the day. Mm -hmm. There were like 306 people that got sick. Most of those people were people who ate later in the day so the gravy had just been sitting out all day right collecting bacteria gross (laughs) so 306 people were sickened by the food many suffered life-threatening illnesses many were hospitalized and one underwent emergency surgery some continued to struggle with their health and 31 were parties to a lawsuit that settled in mediation in 2019 Hmm. and the restaurant which had already operated for around 33 years then later closed permanently and was demolished Hmm. so (laughs) apparently there was a lot of politicking around the health department yeah and the inspections that buffets go through because they only go through one inspection a year i guess Mm -hmm. and so it's really up to the buffet restaurant to protect themselves to not get sued right. and to have proper health and food safety. Yeah. Also like don't go to a buffet. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I I used to love buffets, especially like Chinese oh, buffets, too. but now I'm just like maybe it's since COVID. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's been I don't know. It ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. And then number five for my quick, fun little cases, Texas NOR company versus Nolan. This is a freight train killed 10 turkeys that were being raised to sell for Thanksgiving. The owner, Mr. Nolan, filed a lawsuit to recover damages. However, since the incident occurred in August of 1934, questions of market value at the time of the death came up. So the court ruled, ultimately, that damages would only be awarded for cold-cut value of turkey in August rather than what their value would be worth the month of November. So this is an issue of like actual versus potential value. Right. So the turkeys were roaming free on their own land, but the train was going really super fast, never blew a whistle, a horn or anything, or took any other precautions. They did raise contributory negligence, but I, it, they never got a good ruling on that because the turkeys were on their own land and there's no duty of care for turkeys to roam on the owner's own land, apparently. So mm-hmm. it was really just an issue of what is the amount of damages. So then I, of course, like I said, I like to get to exploring costs of things. Mm-hmm. So apparently turkey prices are the lowest they've been historically. And it's really crazy considering that grocery prices in general are ridiculously high. Mm-hmm. So apparently Meyer. I said that incorrectly. Myers, <laughs> Myers is offering its customers a deal on turkeys right now for Thanksgiving holiday at roughly the same cost as what it offered its customers in the 1930s. Oh, wow. so <laughs> doing a little bit of deep diving, customers can purchase the Meyer brand frozen turkeys for only 59 cents per pound through November 25th. The um, CPI inflation calculator said that 59 cents in 1937 had the equivalent buying power of $12.52 today. Hmm. So the general rule is to plan for one and a half pounds of turkey per guest. There will be an average of 7.4 people at the Thanksgiving table this year, um, which varies. Um, Apparently, actually, you can expect more guests if you're younger. So Gen Z and younger millennials actually is an average of like 9.8 guests. Whereas like if you're older, seniors, retirees anticipate around six people. So I just went with, uh, I think I went with eight, eight Mm -hmm. people of the average guests. Mm -hmm. So eight times one and a half pounds equals about a 12 pound turkey for your average turkey. 12 pounds times 59 cents equals about $7 today, which I'm like. $7. $7. I can go to the store and buy a whole turkey for $7. I right. confirmed it. Yes. I mean, Myers is running like a special deal. So um, other places I looked at, depending also on the brand, I mean, a 12 pound turkey can range from $7 to $12 and upwards of there. So like $7 to $12 for 12 pound turkey sounds about right. Okay. So then I did 12 pounds times which would be the buying power in 1937, would actually be $150.24 today. Oh, wow. So so if I'm in 19... I think I did this math correctly. I probably did not. So let us know (laughs) if I made a math mistake. In 1937, I would go and buy a turkey for $7 if it was on sale. (laughs) And that $7 would feel like today 
$150. I cannot, I cannot imagine going to the store and buying a turkey for $150 to feed eight people. Right. But I did also learn that turkeys apparently had a huge rise in market value in November. So Hmm. I don't know what their market cost was in August in 1937 i could not find it i think Mm -hmm. the trial court had said like it might it might even be as low as zero Mm. like turkeys are just worthless unless it's thanksgiving and they're like ridiculous (laughs) so it's like well then it's like okay did they have refrigeration like freezer technology in 1937 i think they did i don't know how good it was like could you just buy a 12 pound turkey in august and then keep it frozen through november right I don't or know. when people just go out and shoot turkeys. But turkey populations were actually extremely low in the 1930s hmm. because their population had been decimated by habitat destruction and by completely unregulated hunting. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until the 1950s that they did all this conservation movement. And that's why we have all these wild turkeys walking around now. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what it was like having Thanksgiving dinner in the Great Depression. Right. Yeah. Okay. So those are my five cases. And this one. This case has everything. It's got Thanksgiving. (laughs) It's got family drama. It's got conspiracy, kidnapping, false imprisonment, and cults. I love love cults. I love cults. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay. So the name of this case is Weiss versus Patrick. It's Leslie Weiss versus Theodore Patrick and Albert Turner. And this was in the U.S. District Court of Rhode Island. So what I'm actually going to do is pretty much like read the opinion Mm -hmm. because the drama I got just from reading this opinion was... (laughs) crazy um and i'll try and like shorten it as much as i can and then like explain other things but like this is this was great this is a great (laughs) read um yes so it's u.s district court for rhode island um this is the district judge this is judge boyle i guess i don't know his first name okay this is an action for damages brought by the plaintiff leslie weiss against defendants Theodore Patrick Jr. and Albert Turner, alleging conspiracy under the provisions of some law, together with pendant claims for damages for assault and battery and false imprisonment. Okay, so this girl, I think I just call her Leslie, Mm -hmm. and I may also refer to her as victim. Okay. Um, That's a question, but... She's suing these two guys who she's not related to. Um, For now, I'm going to call them Mr. Patrick and Mr. Turner. And that may change later. (laughs) Um, So the complaint was filed July 22nd, 1975. It alleges that Leslie is an active member of a religious organization and is entitled to freely practice her religion, but that defendants conspired to deny plaintiff equal protection of the law. Plaintiff alleges that defendants were actively actively prevented her through force, violence, and intimidation from enjoying equal rights, privileges, and immunities. The alleged conspiracy involved her right of freedom of interstate movement, 
speech, religion, association, assembly, her right to be secure in her person, and her right not to be enslaved, not deprived of life and liberty other than by due process of law. Additional counts allege confinement of plaintiff without legal justification, interference with her personal liberty by means of unconsented bodily contact, and resulting mental suffering. The complete the complaint seeks compensatory and punitive damages. So she's basically alleging she should get money from these people because of she was assaulted and they held her against her will somehow. That's the false imprisonment. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look up, this is a slightly older case, false imprisonment for a civil case. This It's also a crime. But to sue someone in a civil basis for damages, um, you basically have to show, at least at the time, that this it's an intentional tort so that they knew exactly what they're doing and they intended to do this thing against you. Okay, elements of false imprisonment claims. You have to show there was a willful detention, detention without consent, and the detention was unlawful. And you also then have to show, in order to get damages, what what are they? So were they actual damage? Actual damages are like hospital costs, treatment costs, that sort of thing, um, damage to property. So if they like broke something mm-hmm. and like broke your watch while they were detaining you, cost of the watch. Um, punitive damages are like punishment, right? So um, you did something that was illegal, so we're going to like fine you basically. Mm-hmm. So here is what happened according to the... Opinion of the court. In June of 1974, Leslie became a member of the Unification Church. Oh, God. (laughs) Unification Unification Church, popularly known as the Moonies. Um, And I had remembered this as Scientology. That's incorrect. Mm -hmm. It's the Moonies. I'm not going to go into who the Moonies are because there's so much information on (laughs) cults and uh, the Moonies specifically. But they are recognized by the FBI, I believe, as and mm-hmm. labeled as a cult and the their members prefer to call themselves the unification church so a lot mm-hmm. of time throughout here they're just referred to as unification church to try to be respectful to the court to the cult yeah. but like that's as you'll see that's not really where this judge goes yeah. um and um so the moonies follow the teaching of the reverend moon that's where they get the name Moonies. So at that time that she joined the cult, she was 23. She's the daughter of a physician and a professor of anatomy and physiology and has one brother. Both her mother and father deceased prior to the time of the trial. The father in September of 77 and the mother of February of 76. Plaintiff's health, so Leslie's health, the victim here, has mm-hmm. been marred by emotional problems. Her mother first recognized emotional difficulties when the plaintiff was in a seventh grade student. And until June of 1974, she was frequently under the treatment for psychological or psychiatric problems. Leslie has not been treated for her emotional problems since she became a member of the Unification Church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very victim blamey here. Okay. Plaintiff slash Leslie, is possessed of above-average intelligence and successfully pursued collegiate studies on two occasions, which ended because of her emotional problems. Although there is no contention and no doubt that she is a competent, she is competent, she is an extremely troubled person. 
Following her initial membership into the Unification Church in June of 74, she trained for a time in Boston, Massachusetts, and later at Terrytown, New York. Thereafter, she joined a mobile fundraising team in Ohio where she did, quote, indemnity by vending items for sale in various locations. Indemnity was defined as a process of life which all must pay in order to cure the separation between God and mankind. So this is part of her like cult, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, you have to do all this work and give everything to Reverend Moon. That's part of why it's mm. a, a cult rather than a religion. Um, yeah. Although in my mind, the only difference between religion and cult is time. Like all religions are cults. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone has their own cult, I guess you could say. You know, we all are a little obsessed with some things and prioritize mm-hmm. other things and have blind spots and biases. But, like, it, it, there's questions there. But, yeah. Um, there's some troubling activity by this organization. Let's just say mm-hmm. that at minimum. So... Leslie's mom became ill with cancer, and the church authorities authorized her to visit her mother at Thanksgiving in November of 74. So she flew from Columbus, Ohio to Boston, Massachusetts on November 27th, 1974, arriving in Boston in the early morning hours. She was met by her mother at the airport and then was driven by her mother, driven to her mother's home where she slept for a time. Her mother told her plans to have Thanksgiving dinner with friends and told plaintiff that she had a surprise in store for her. At approximately 2 p.m. the same day, Mr. Dixon arrived and drove Leslie and her mother to a nearby shopping center. Mr. Dixon was later identified at the trial to be Mr. Turner. So he had this like fake name for some reason when she first met him at the shopping center, plaintiff met Shelly Turner, Mr. Turner's daughter. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Turner. Turner is the family friend. Okay. So Turner, I don't know why he had an alias, but, um, she met him and then his daughter, who she actually recognized Shelly, the daughter, because mm-hmm. Shelly had also been a previous member of the Unification Church. Okay. So Mr. Turner, Shelly Turner, mom, and Leslie travel from Massachusetts to the Turner's home in Rhode Island. In an automobile operated by Mr. Turner, plaintiff was met warmly at the Turner home by... Uh, the rest of the family, the Turner family, and was taken to a nicely furnished basement. This next part's crazy. Okay. When seated in the basement, plaintiff was approached by a black man, later identified as the other defendant, Mr. Patrick, who stated, my name is Black Lightning, and I have flown here all the way from my home in California just to talk to you this afternoon. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> It's like, what, what is going on here? Is there going to be right. a stripper performance? Like, I have not recognized any of these names. So um, the defendant listed was Theodore Turner Jr. So he's commonly known as, uh, what did I say? Turner? No, I keep confusing Turner with Patrick. Theodore Patrick Jr. is commonly known as Ted Patrick. And Ted Patrick is actually a pretty a well-known controversial figure in what he terms as deprogramming. So -hmm. I didn't know this reading through this opinion the first time around. And then I did all this like background stuff. So that's Mm -hmm. just to kind of put it a little bit into context. He's, he later gets the nickname black lightning because he 
physically like kidnaps people off the street to try oh. to deprogram them. Okay. That's not really what happened in this case, apparently. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. That's how we got that nickname. Yeah. So the basement area was described as an area 25 feet by 15 feet, modestly furnished with one doorway. The occupants sat in a circle, which included Leslie, her mother, the Turner family, and Black Lightning. I'm not even kidding. The judge kept referring to him as Black Lightning. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is happening? Oh, okay. So, plaintiff testified that defendant Patrick told her she was out of her right mind, that she had been deprived of her free will, and she was worshiping Satan, and that they were going to take as long as it was necessary to force me to change my mind. Quote. Plaintiff testified that she sought to leave. And here's a long quote. It seemed to me that everybody in that room was on top of me, restraining me from getting to that door. Several people actually had their hands on me physically, but there was one tremendous force coming from Mr. Turner. He grabbed me very harshly by the shoulder and slammed me violently into a chair then pinned me to pinned me there. And I was greatly hurt. My whole body was hurt, writhing in pain. I was shocked. I was frightened. I was angry at the restraint of my freedom. And he must have held me there for a few minutes, one or two minutes. But at that time, it seemed like a very long time. She testified that she was told by Mr. Patrick, aka Black Lightning, that he was there to deprogram me. Plaintiff stated that she realized defendant Turner and Patrick were prepared to use force to now the judge keeps switching between black lightning, <laughs> Mr. Patrick, just Patrick. I don't know. It's all over the place. Um, okay. But they were prepared to use force to detain me against my will. So I decided it would be easier for me to go along and pretend that their deprogramming tactics were influencing me. And that I was gradually and gradually being deprogrammed plaintiff further testified she asked everyone to leave the basement area and i talked to mr turner and told him that i thought he was very concerned about me and that he was very courageous to be trying to rescue me and that i thought that he must be really concerned to be going to this great extent to get me free and i was pretending to be deprogrammed and pretending to act i act that i trusted him later testimony makes it clear defendant patrick not defendant turner was then alone with plaintiff um so she then testified that there was a time when she acted as if she were in agreement with the deprogramming process i told him that i considered him to be concerned courageous and that i thanked him for liberating me from my illusions she testified that she made no further indication that she was that she wished to leave the basement discussion continued for approximately four hours then plaintiff with her mother Patrick Turner and his family and a number of relatives of the Turner family sat down to two hour Thanksgiving dinner in an upstairs dining room. Thereafter, plaintiff took a nap on the living room sofa. (laughs) She then retired to a bedroom, which was also occupied by her mother and Shelly. Plaintiff described the room as having one window where Shelly's bed was located and one doorway across which her mother's bed was later placed. So Leslie is claiming that the mom's bed was placed in front of the doorway. Okay. Um, She actually testified she assisted her mother in moving the bed and that I thought I had better give help. I thought I'd better comply with anything they asked me to do. Plaintiff testified that about 5 o'clock on the following morning, she attempted to leave by moving the bed back 
She attempted to leave by moving her mother's bed, but woke her and was unable to move the bed. Plaintiff arose with the other occupants of the household between six and seven in the morning. At this time, both Patrick and Turner had left the Turner home. Patrick testified later on she was allowed to roam the house. She stayed at her plaintiff. Plaintiff testified, not Patrick. I had been trying ever since I talked to Ted Patrick in the basement to convince him that my mother and Mr. Turner and Mrs. Turner and Shelly Turner, that I was agreeing with everything they said and that I was being deprogrammed. I was being dissuadive of my religious beliefs. I was coming to my senses and I became a great actress. And so they gra- gradually relaxed their controls on me the more they became convinced that I was being deprogrammed. Plaintiff exited the Turner home later that morning through a bedroom window, jumping eight to 10 feet to the ground. Plaintiff went first to a nearby home and then to a nursing home one block away. She There she attempted to call members of the Unification Church when her mother caught up with her in a telephone booth. She ran to a medical building nearby. The police were called and plaintiff was taken back to the Turner home and upon refusal to enter, she was taken to Butler Hospital in a police car. At the hospital, plaintiff (laughs) testified that she pretended that I had what the programmers called a relapse or a floating experience where they momentarily flipped back into their old beliefs and tried to make an attempt at their freedom. I acted as if I had such a relapse and then pretended that I was now coming back into my deprogrammed state, saying that I wanted to be helped and that I wanted to get my mind straightened out, and I was sorry. She remained at Butler Hospital for four days and was allowed to leave when she asked to leave. At the hospital, she testified she had migraine headaches, nausea, and gastrointestinal upsets, And that the upsets continued after she left the hospital. She further testified, sometimes I still fear traveling alone. She testified this fear of traveling alone restricted her relationship with her mother and she was forced to choose between my relationship with my mother and my own freedom. Shelley Turner's testimony concerning the basement episode was somewhat different from plaintiff's version. She stated that plaintiff had said she wanted to leave. She bolted upright, ran into my father. My father, Mr. Turner, asked her to please sit down. My mother came over and said something like, for some reason she called her Janny, Janny, please sit down. And then her mother, Mrs. Weiss, had said something. I don't remember exactly what. I said something to Leslie. She went over very calmly and sat down again. So she's making it seem like it's more of like an intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh Whereas Leslie's testimony was like, it's a little bit more forceful. Yeah. She also testified that there were two windows in the bedroom where plaintiff and plaintiff's mother slept and that the plaintiff's mother's bed was not placed across the doorway. So here's where the judge, the court starts to make their own findings of fact. Like Mm. previously, they've pretty much just been like quoting the depositions and testimony Pretty much of the plaintiff, a little bit of other people. So they now say the credible evidence is that the court finds the facts to be as follows. Plaintiff willingly accompanied her mother to the Turner home for Thanksgiving dinner, where she met and talked with defendant Patrick, who had been hired and paid by plaintiff's mother to convince plaintiff to change her way of life. Plaintiff willingly listened, enjoyed dinner, napped, slept fitfully, and thereafter determined to exit dramatically. Defendants and Miss Weiss indeed intended to change plaintiff's mind by their actions, but the court finds no credible evidence of improper action. So there are a number of reasons why plaintiff's versions of fact, which allegedly transpired at the 
Mr. Turner's home is not credible. Um, so to begin with, the mom was terminally ill. There were a number of other persons there where this incident of assault allegedly occurred. And although plaintiff's mother's deposition was taken um, when she was known to be terminally ill and was introduced as evidence, she was not asked to either corroborate or deny plaintiff's accusations of what occurred at the Turner home, which is interesting. Why would you not ask her that at the deposition? Right. Um, in spite of the traumatic and vivid description of the events provided by plaintiff, she suffered no treatable or apparent physical injury. The fact that the facts that she ate well, napped and moved about at will prior to her quote escape are distinctly contrary to a claim of traumatic infliction of psychic injury. I kind of get where they're coming from with that, but it goes on further. Plaintiff alleges physical and emotional disturbances as a result of her experience. The court finds, however, that there is no credible evidence of such, such injury. Plaintiff has not proved that she, that the state of plaintiff's emotional health changed in any manner as a result of her alleged confinement. Indeed, she testified that she had not been treated for her emotional problems since she joined the cult, Unification <laughs> Church, either before or after the alleged kidnapping. Other than her own assertions and those of two members of the Unification Church, the only medical witness who testified for plaintiff was a doctor who had some psych psychiatric training um mm -hmm. incidental to his medical training um so he did like a an internship or something that was required of him but mm -hmm. um for the past five and a half years he has been a teacher and spiritual counselor in the unification church and has served as a, re a regional director for the church in the western united states he was aware of plaintiff's emotional instability prior to her alleged kidnapping. He testified that plaintiff was severely agitated, which he believed was caused by the kidnapping and 20 hours of deprogramming. His opinion was that plaintiff was suffering from an acute anxiety reaction. He testified, however, he was not making a diagnosis and was not an expert in psychiatry. His opinion mm -hmm. was an expert was an impression further he was not familiar with the plaintiff's history of prior treatment for emotional difficulties the testimony falls short falls far short of proof that plaintiff suffered emotional disturbances caused by defendants mm. so there's no damages she was already crazy and she wasn't getting any help for <laughs> for it so right. even if she's crazy now that's not these poor people's fault right it's what i get out of it anyways <laughs> Ugh. The court has a clear mandate to protect private individuals from infringement of their civil rights, that is, those rights and guarantees embodied in the constitutional and laws of the United States. Any violation of civil right legislation which denies an individual equal equality before the law because of characteristics generally attributable to a group requires decisive remedial action. Before launching upon a review of remedy, however, the court must find evidence of a violation of plaintiff's civil plaintiff's civil rights. On the basis of all evidence presented, the court is not persuaded that Leslie's civil rights were infringed by defendant's actions so as to constitute a violation of 42 U.S.C. section 1985 subsection 3 as alleged. The plaintiff has failed to prove that she suffered deprivation of any federally protected right. At trial, both defendants invoked their privilege against self-incrimination. It must be taken as true, and the court so finds that they combined with plaintiff's mother for a joint purpose to influence 
plaintiff's membership in the Unification Church and to persuade her to leave the Unification Church. The court holds that the defendant's actions constitute a proper exercise of their constitutional right to speak, speak freely as to a willing listener. And further, which, so I'm not sure that this case is still great law. Um, I wasn't able to like shepherdize this because I didn't have access to Westlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine there would be some yellow flags here. I think mm-hmm. the issue is really more so that I think the court kind of got the facts a little wrong here. Mm-hmm. Not so much that they misapplied the law, but this is where it gets questionable. <laughs> Plaintiff's mother has the parental right to freely advocate a point of view to her daughter, be she minor or adult. Defendants have the right, which all citizens have, to peaceably dissuade plaintiff of her particular religious views, provided they use no form of unlawful compulsion to affect their purpose. What occurred here was simply an effort in private to persuade a willing listener to disavow the tenets of the Unification Church, to hold otherwise would be to deny defendants their First Amendment right to freedom of speech, one of the very rights which plaintiff herself asserts as a basis for of her civil rights claim. Basically, they're saying there's no coercion. Mm-hmm. She had the right to refuse to listen. It's free exchange of ideas. Blah, 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 blah. I don't think there's much left here. Hmm. They just kind of keep repeating things. <laughs> Basically, that she failed to meet any her burden of proof that there there was any allegation here. Mm -hmm. So, the plaintiff's complaint is denied and dismissed, and the judgment shall enter for the defendants for their costs. Okay, so this, I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? Parental rights, right? Like you don't have parental rights over an adult, but basically, I, I think. They took a lot into Ted Patrick's talking points here. Mm -hmm. So Ted Patrick, a.k.a. Black Lightning, um, he's kind of known as like, well, he calls himself the king of deprogrammers, but he's like kind of like the first guy out there to like try to get people deprogrammed from these cults. Mm -hmm. Um. This incident, I said several times, Thanksgiving 1974. This opinion was published June 1st of 1978. Um, I highly recommend a documentary mm-hmm. that I found called Deprogrammed. It's available on Tubi, so it's free with just like a few ads. It's not anything bad. Um, and it's a really good documentary. So basically it goes into like the history of like mod- – I don't even – don't even want to say modern cults, but like, um, like after like the fifties and sixties and kind of like just teens rebelling from their parents and the traditional roles of religion and wanting to find like the hippie movement, like wanting to find mm-hmm. peaceful movements and join a commune and things like that. They were called, some people refer to them as new religions, mm-hmm. even though they were, some of them were very focused around Jesus. Um, and then this occurred in the 60s. Now, Jonestown Massacre was later in 1978. So this was just before it. Oh, wow. But um, 
there was kind of this idea that cult are bad, right? Um, yeah. Cults are bad. They do bad things. But they don't necessarily do anything illegal. Right. So, I mean, it's possible mm-hmm. that they for them to do illegal things. And yeah. certainly when they have practices of to be a member of this church, you have to give us all your money. <laughs> Right. And then they isolate yep. you from your families and, and blah, blah, yeah. blah. You know, like, that's like, uh, borders on coercion, right? But, like, yeah, the theory is, though, is if you're a grown adult, you can do whatever you want. Like, if you right. make the decision, yes, I know I'm giving all my money to this person. Mm-hmm. Then that's your decision to make. You're allowed to make bad decisions. Right. And so there was kind of these two ways of thinking right of like i have the freedom to join this cult but also i have the freedom like i am your family like these people are doing mm-hmm. bad things they're isolating you they're taking advantage of you so i have the right to like try and rescue you from that yeah but what these deprogrammers are doing are physically kidnapping people and trying right. to co- convince people that you need rescuing and yeah so like some, when you watch the documentary, like some of the people, they had a good range. I think they, mm-hmm. some people were like, yes, I'm so grateful that I was deprogrammed. I got out of there. Like it saved my life. Right. Um, or it like made me start questioning things, but almost all of them went back to the cults right away. Almost oh, all of them. Wow. Okay. Because they weren't ready. Like, right. Yeah. And a lot of them, one guy that they talked to was, but actually a few of them were not members of cults. They just, mm didn't want to talk to their parents yeah (laughs) so it's like oh my gosh like leave your kids alone they're adults like i know it sucks but oh also i recommend escaping twin flames on netflix it's a new docuseries that has episodes right or is it only three episodes though okay i've watched the first one then yep it's based in Michigan, and it's like I know that threw oh. me off. <laughs> okay, and they lived in Farmington Hills at the same time mm-hmm. that I lived in Farmington Hills. <laughs> I know these people probably right. not though, because it seems like their entire life was online. Like they didn't, yeah, they didn't really make f- real friends, right? Yeah. Um, but that's like what I would call a modern day cult because it's very internet right. based, um, very like new agey. I mean, I guess at the time a lot of these cults in the 1960s were new agey but yeah i don't know but it just feels more modern than like a hippie cult of the 60s and 70s right yeah but what i also got out of this documentary was when mr black lightning was doing all these deprogrammings from like Mm. the 60s to even the late 70s early 80s especially like right after jonestown occurred a lot, the public and a lot of people were on his side. So yeah. I think that's really what this opinion kind of gets at was like, yeah, your parents have the right to try and rescue you from this cult. And that's where I think the Turners were involved here because I was trying to figure out how, the, mm-hmm. like, this whole family. I think right. it's because Shelly used to be a prior member and I think she must have been either deprogrammed herself or just left voluntarily and so is trying mm-hmm. to help other people leave. Okay. That's my guess. Yeah. Um, and so after like more into the 80s and early 90s, the tides really started to turn against this deprogramming. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually was convicted of mm-hmm. federal crimes of kidnapping and false imprisonment. He served a year in jail. 
He actually lost a lot of lawsuits. So that's why I'm thinking this probably isn't great law. Um, I think the facts here are a little harder because Leslie is testifying. And a lot of the things she did say were like, yeah, you did. You did stay in the basement for four hours. You did eat Thanksgiving dinner and then took a nap and then stayed the night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How hard did you really try to leave? But it's like, that's not really what the standard is. It seems like as long as you reasonably, reasonable belief that you couldn't leave. Right. uh, And it's, and it's a reasonable person standard, which is like, I can understand how she thought she couldn't leave, especially Mm -hmm. because I do think they got physical with her a little bit. Probably. I think so too. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much because I think people, I mean, I, and I think too in the 80s, the cult started training people of like, here's what you do if someone tries to yeah. de-pro- deprogram you, just right. like, let them talk to you and then leave. Um, well, I think like she exaggerated because like when you were talking about pushing her down into the chair and she's like, every part of my body hurt, like yeah. did it though. But I do believe that she probably was pushed down into the chair. So, I don't oh, know. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I was reading different things on like, what does that mean to be physically restrained? Like someone just grabbing right. your arm is not physically restraining. If you feel like you can yeah. just like say, let go and walk away, that's not physical restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like holding you and not letting you go, even if you try to move away. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the judge didn't really get into much detail on that, but I was like, what? I remember reading this last year. I remember thinking like, parental rights being like a bigger thing and it being more Scientology and that Scientology apparently is a big reason of why Ted Turner's Ted Turner that's why I keep wanting to say Ted Turner but it's Ted Patrick Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Ted Patrick he like had this whole like company and like trained other people onto programming but that whole thing like collapsed because he kept getting sued by Scientology and they have so much resources that it's like that's the machine that can't be broken yeah and they are totally a cult don't they need to pay their taxes. But. <laughs> I know it's dangerous to talk out against them, but I oh know, well. <laughs> I know. I don't think there's anything they can do against me though, because none of my family are in Scientology. So yeah, yeah. I'm not big enough to really cause <laughs> much. True, but um, so that was part of the documentary of like why a lot of these cults formed, where where it's mm-hmm. like you just had to say you're a religion, and then you didn't have to pay taxes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When we were watching the the Twin Flames, mm-hmm. a documentary documentary was just like how many of these cult leaders were more self aware of like I just want to be a cult leader. I want right. to take advantage. Let me research and like figure out coercive things to do to mm-hmm. become a cult leader. And how many cult leaders are just so naturally narcissistic that they just know how to right control people yeah yeah i don't know there's a book called i think it's called join me have you heard of this that it's um god i read it like in college but it's just kind of this guy decided he wants to start a cult he doesn't have like bad intentions he just Mm -hmm. is like i want to be a cult leader and so he just like sent out flyers that said like join me and people would just join him even though he had like no dogma no nothing but (laughs) All right, and it's like it's just a group of people who want to hang out until right. something bad happens, and that's kind of yeah. where like Jonestown kind of came in of like 
this is why cults are bad. Like they can, yeah. if they brainwash right. you, they can convince hundreds of people to just kill themselves. Like, yeah, yeah, there are definitely cults where that has happened. Right. But like, there are thousands of cults operating in the United States today. Yeah. And they're not necessarily means that you're going to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid at the end. It just, right. Some of them could be coercive. You know, you've got the, the fundamentalists, church yeah that's a, and, and i'm not talking about mormons i'm talking about like jeff mm-hmm. warren's like who's in jail right yeah. now for yeah. like underage marriage right polygamy yeah like yeah oh, bad so people are looking for control in various ways it's like yeah because i want to feel powerful i want money i want sex i want whatever mm-hmm. so yeah i just love cults the whole psychology yeah. of it is just oh, oh. i agree it's <laughs> so crazy. I just yeah. love it. So yeah, that's right. my Thanksgiving. <laughs> my Thanksgiving court case. Yeah. And that reminded me, talking about documentaries, that makes me think of some legal news. Um, have you seen uh Take Care of Maya on Netflix? No. No, okay. So I don't want to ruin it too much for people that haven't seen it, but basically, like The premise is it's this girl, I think she's 17 now. She might be 18. She's close to being an adult if she's not already. And as a kid, she was diagnosed with a really rare disease. Um, So her mom happened to be a nurse and was very like at the forefront of making sure her daughter got like the newest treatment, blah, blah, blah. And she actually had taken her to Mexico originally to get some treatment and they were treating her daughter with ketamine down there. So they came back home to the States and um, one day the uh, Maya, the daughter, um, started having some sort of stomach issues, was in a lot of pain. So they took her to the hospital and mom was like, she needs ketamine. That's what they're treating her with in Mexico. And the doctors were like, yeah, that's abusive. You have Munchausen by proxy. Like we're taking your kid away from you. Um, And so like it just it's. A really horrible case um but they just sued the hospital and they won i think 260 million or something like that so that was pretty awesome i've been yeah keeping an eye on that because it's it's a really sad case but yeah you should check well, that out it's on netflix it? i think it's another one on netflix the one where it's like the um the guardianship one oh i don't know if i've seen that one. Oh, i forgot who it is but she like goes and gets like guardianships over mm-hmm. seniors and then has basically what happened is she was abusive, right? Like she would take, yeah, she would completely control them, put them in nursing homes and then like oh. use their money. But right. like it really highlighted the system of mm-hmm. legally incapacitated guardianships. And right. I'm like, I can't watch this. It's too, like, it's, yeah. I know the system and I know it's, a, especially like Britney Spears. It's like, I don't, right. Yeah. I don't, I don't need to be traumatized like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so for mine, um, first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of like general crime statistics around Thanksgiving, since that's kind of our uh, 
typical thing that we do yeah. when we talk about holidays around here. Um, so Thanksgiving may not be the drunkest holiday of the year, but it is the deadliest. Um, so people believe that this is because of family coming together, disputes breaking oh. out between relatives. Um, one poll found that 68% of the people that responded to it uh, were expecting some kind of trouble at their family Thanksgiving dinner that year. So oh it's quite a few, quite a few. It's quite up there. Um, reports of assaults and domestic violence increased by around 20%. And drunk driving rates and car fatalities also increase. Um, some sources say more so than uh, New Year's Eve, which surprises me because when we did our New Year's Eve episode, I'm fairly certain we had sources that said um, that was the, the biggest day for drunk driving. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Maybe they're you know, probably up there, both of them together. Um, and then police and hospitals also see a lot of accidental injuries that time of year, um, from kitchen fires to grease burns to people cutting themselves while cutting vegetables, that sort of thing. And so then I have um, three cases that I'm going to talk about. They're not very long, um, but this first one is like shockingly gruesome. So everyone, you have been warned. <laughs> um, oh, I'm really surprised I didn't hear about this before because it was, it was pretty bad. And I wish I could have found more details on it, but I'm going to give you kind of the, the short overview. So this one is the story of Omaya Nelson. And Omaya was born in Egypt in 1968. Sadly, she says that she suffered significant abuse as a child and was the victim of female genital mutilation. And so she fled the country as an adult and moved to the United States at 18 years old. And things seemingly turned up for her for a while. She first found a job as a nanny and then was able to use her gorgeous looks to become a model in California. And then in 1991, so about five years after she had moved here, uh, she met Bill Nelson. And for Bill, it was love at first sight as he met the beauty with cut glass cheekbones, as the Los Angeles Times put it, uh, while they were drinking and playing pool at the local bar. But Bill was 56 years old, which made him 33 years older than Omaima, I think is how you pronounce it. It's O-M-A-I-M-A. -A. So I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, all these people have hard names today. I don't know why I chose them. <laughs> um. That didn't stop them, though, that age gap. Uh, they still got married after only a few days of knowing each other. But things weren't perfect even during the honeymoon period. Uh, Bill had been in some legal trouble previously. He had used to work as a commercial pilot, but he had been caught smuggling marijuana um, in and out of the country, and he had served four years in federal prison. He had recently just been released on parole and was starting to work in a mortgage company at, around the time that he had met Omaima. Um, according to her, it didn't take long for things to turn sour after they got married. Almost immediately after they were married, she says that he started being violent with her both physically and sexually, but she was determined to make things work and to be a good wife. Um, so around Thanksgiving of 1991, she dutifully made Thanksgiving dinner, but according to her, this wasn't enough to keep Bill happy and he attempted to rape and strangle her. Um, so during the struggle, she grabbed a lamp and hit him over the head, and she was then able to get away and grab a pair of scissors, which she used to stab Bill repeatedly. But this is where things kind of get questionable. So okay. once Bill was dead, um, she then dismembered him. She boiled his head in water. She cooked his hands in oil in an attempt to remove the fingerprints. And then she also castrated him, um, apparently in revenge for the assault. 
And so this part's unclear from the sources I saw, but presumably it's, she kind of just left the body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she. I'm um, horrible though. No, no, I hear you. And she left the body, I guess, in the house for a couple of days because the the next part that we know is that sometime on Saturday, following the Thanksgiving, she um, mixed the rest of Bill's remains into the leftover turkey from Thanksgiving oh. dinner. So, <laughs> have I not heard about this before? I know, right? <laughs> oh my God. Um, the parts of his body that she could not fit into the turkey were put down the garbage disposal, and then larger parts of his body were placed into newspaper and then trash bags. Well, she then like drove, a movie. right? <laughs> she then drove uh, one of the trash bags over to her friend's house, showed it to her friend, and offered her friend $75,000 to help dispose of the bag, which where she was getting the 75 grand, I don't know. Also not a great idea to like tell someone that you just murdered someone, but right. just some free legal advice. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so the friend immediately called police and this is how, you know, she eventually was caught. Um, as a part of her court case, she was interviewed by a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist testified that Omaima um, had told him that she dressed up before, quote unquote, preparing her husband. Um, so she had dressed up in red shoes, a red hat, and red lipstick. She also allegedly told the psychiatrist that she had eaten Bill's ribs, and she ate them with barbecue sauce and described it as, it's so sweet. Um, at trial, a member of law enforcement testified that while they had found some of Bill's remains in the garbage bags as in her car, as well as several other garbage bags in the home, around 130 pounds of Bill were missing and never recovered. And so Amima would deny saying any of these things to the psychiatrist, but she did state to the court, if I didn't defend my life, I would have been dead. I am sorry it happened, but I'm glad I lived. I'm sorry I dismembered him. And she was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 28 years to life. She's been up for parole twice and was denied both times. She's going to be eligible for parole again in 2026. She still maintains that she did not eat any part of her husband, stating, I'm not a monster. Uh, but when the parole board asked her why she'd cooked him, she could not give them a good answer. I, okay. Yeah, so I am uh, I'm on the fence on that one because I do feel like it was self defense, but mm -hmm. she took it a little too far. <laughs> the but dismembering it also sounds like she had a mental breakdown. Oh, I think so. Far. Absolutely right. So I think it's somewhere. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Usually, oh, you God. know, it's got to yeah. be. And the problem yeah. is, is, a lot of the evidence has been right messed with so yeah and it was just her and her husband right or yeah husband right yeah at so, the time. so it's not and, like there were any cooperating witnesses or anything right like and my understanding is the the prosecutor had argued that she basically would target older men for their money um and so i don't know if there really was strong evidence of that happening before this but that was kind of their argument was like she did this for the money i don't think she did no. i think she probably was a victim of sexual assaults and like had a lot of trauma from her childhood and it kind of just all came to a head but yeah definitely gruesome <laughs> um awesome my next one <laughs> it's like how come people like Dahmer get all the name recognition and not someone right. like this? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next one is uh, another hard name. Um, his first name is Paul, uh, middle name Michael, and then Mirhage, M-E-R-H-I-G-E. Mirhage? I don't know. We're going to call him Paul. Um, so Paul um, in 2009 was in Florida. He got invited to his cousin's Thanksgiving dinner. It wasn't something that he normally went to. Um, in fact, his cousin was a little bit surprised that he had even showed up, but the family welcomed him in with, with open arms. And dinner went over great. Everyone enjoyed themselves. And then after dinner, someone even started playing the piano. The whole family had a sing-along. And Paul's cousin's daughter even performed the dance that she was going to be doing at her recital the next day. So it seemed like a really oh, just cute. like nice family Thanksgiving. Um, and nothing was out of the ordinary. No one was fighting or anything. And then suddenly Paul just pulled out a gun. And he shot his cousin's wife, his own two twin sisters, one of whom was pregnant, and then his cousin's six-year-old daughter. Uh, before he fled the scene, he turned to his cousin and said, I've waited 20 years to do this. What he meant by that, I don't know. You waited um, until after the six-year-old's like, little performance to do yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, he was eventually captured. He took a plea to seven consecutive life sentences in order so to avoid the death did not penalty. Survive? No, all four passed Aww. away. And I believe there was one or two more people that were injured as well. I think one person was fully shot. Another person was grazed by a bullet. Um, but those two survived, but the other four passed. So, yeah, not, not great. So he's serving life in prison? He is, yes. Did and they then, ever know why? Like, So he just said he's been waiting 20 years to do this and no other explanation other than other than that that I could find. So I'm not not sure if like it was a childhood grudge of some sort cuz like I don't, I don't know the only it, it only makes sense I guess kind of if it was if he was talking about his twins maybe because like I mean the 6-year-old obviously you haven't waited 20 years to kill her and the the cousin's wife like I don't know. It doesn't quite make sense. Maybe he was just out of his mind, though. Who knows? Yeah, that's that's sad. Yeah. Go back to the dismemberment. <laughs> uh, and then my final one is the case of Byron Davis Smith. Finally, an easy name. And uh, Mr. Smith was a retired security engineering officer, and he had recently had his house burglarized several times over the past several months, and he was getting really sick of it, understandably so. Um, but he kind of took it a little too far. And on Thanksgiving Day in 2012, instead of sharing a dinner with anyone, he decided that what he wanted to do was to sit alone in his basement with a rifle and wait and see who was going to come and burglarize his house. Um, so he even See, went so far. That. Yeah, yeah. He went so far as to even move his truck to the back of the house so that it looked like he wasn't at home. And sure enough, after only about an hour of waiting, Byron ho heard someone break into his home. It turned out to be two unarmed cousins, a 17-year-old boy and an 18-year-old girl. Uh, Byron had already suspected these two might be the ones responsible, but he did not know for sure until Thanksgiving. Um, so now that he has these two kids in his house at gunpoint, um, instead of calling the police and 
just holding them there until the police arrived. He decided that it was his right because he, quote, uh, was not a bleeding heart liberal. And so it was his right to shoot them for entering his home. And we know that. Um, you know what? I don't think I wrote it down, but probably <laughs> it feels like a Florida case. Um, we know that that's a quote that he said because he also had put a tape recorder in the basement um, and that caught everything. So he basically like he shot them and then just like verbally rambled and recorded it all and handed it over to the police. Um, and like another thing that he said on the tape was, I don't see them as humans. I see them as vermin. Um, so even <laughs> with the two dead bodies in the house, he didn't call the police until the next day because he didn't want to bother them on Thanksgiving. He's like such a nice guy, like mm -hmm. just a good guy. Uh so at court, he argued the castle doctrine, which for uh -huh. those who don't know, it's basically the premise that you can defend yourself in your own home, even if it means fatally shooting someone else, but it's a little more complicated than just like, if they walk into my house, I have the right to shoot them. Um, so he was still convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And when one of the jurors was interviewed, they stated that it had been the audio recordings that really had sealed the deal for them. Um, it was all his comments after killing the kids that made the jury realize that, quote, we're dealing with a deranged individual. So also don't like record your crimes. Yeah. 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 He probably thought that that was like going to help his defense somehow. But right. Like, no. Yeah. Yep. And that's it for me. I still want to go back to this first one, though. That I know that one's good. I oh, wish there were more details. My, how big was this turkey that she stuffed? Right, I don't into? know. It must have been that pretty huge. It's only for the two of them, so right. Oh my gosh, <laughs> part of me is like, what made him so upset? Did she right. like burn the turkey? I don't know. Like, I mean, right. with these guys, it's, <laughs> right? She of course, didn't do anything yeah. wrong, but. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Okay, that we need to like hype that story up more cuz like Yeah. <laughs> you know, we always say like these serial killers, you know, we don't want they're fascinating, but we don't necessarily want to give all this attention to the serial killers mm -hmm. because they don't deserve it. Yeah. But like this one She's, well, first of all, she's not a serial killer. She just killed one guy. And, yeah. I mean, questionable, you know, self-defense there. So, mm -hmm. ladies, support other ladies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hype up women in these categories. Yeah. I mean, there's so few of them. And, I mean, it's yeah. like not to, like, try to have more serial killers in the world, but equality, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. And what year was that? That was, let me double check. 91. 91? Dahmer was in the 90s, wasn't he? So this yeah, was I before think Dahmer. This was actually before Dahmer, I think. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's why crazy. he just overshadowed her. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. That, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much yeah. for that. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
Yeah. So who knows when we'll do our next one, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to have a Christmas one probably. Yeah. 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 A Yuletide one. Yeah. And then we'll see where we go from there. Cause I still like making these. It's just a matter of. I do too. What am I going to do? It's been so busy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also have started uh, a second job with grading. Oh, did you? I did the, um, the law school essay grading or the bar prep oh, okay. essay grading. Yeah. Because I said it wouldn't take that much time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, sometimes on the weekends, I just want something to do. Right. And it feels, yeah. it's like, I like volunteering and helping people. And this way I'm at least getting paid a little bit for it. So right, we'll see. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Yeah. So what are you doing for Thanksgiving? We are going to my in-laws mm. to watch the Lions game and oh, then nice. eating dinner. And then I think my sister-in-law and my niece are going to come over for a little bit as well for dinner. Oh, good. So it's going to yeah. be very quiet. Oh, nice. <laughs> like no yeah. drama. Stay away from the <laughs> drama this year. It's like yeah. drama is not fun unless it's someone else's drama. Like that right. is great. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, mine is going to be the opposite of quiet because my parents are in town. So we're having a lot of my extended family come over too. So I think um, at one point we were up to like 20 people. I think we're down to 13 again because some people got sick. Um, But still, like I have a tiny house. Yeah. (laughs) So it's going to be in my tiny little house. (laughs) Well, okay. I'm surprised that you had time to record. So we're recording the day before. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the good thing is they are um a lot of people are bringing dishes, so I'm doing the cornbread, corn casserole and the green bean casserole um mm. tomorrow. And then I did the deviled eggs tonight and my mom did the pies. Um so we got the like a cooking for today out of the way by like 5 p.m. and then tomorrow will just be a busy mess in the morning, but it's fine. It will be yeah. fun. <laughs> well, so what did we learn tonight? Uh, don't invite your weird cousin that <laughs> right. has a, ven- a 20-year-old vendetta against you. Um, don't leave out the gravy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, don't go turkey hunting with someone who's an idiot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Important um, life lessons. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So hopefully we'll be back around Christmas. Um, if not sooner, we can try for sooner. But we we'll absolutely see. can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye.